The second reading is from Exodus chapter 15, chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery school, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in Egypt. His word was law, or it was supposed to be. He came up with what looked like a brilliant plan for stemming the unwelcome population explosion that was happening among the Israelite immigrants into his country. It was an attempt to deal with the problem at source. Instructions were given to the Hebrew midwives that as soon as one of the Hebrew women had a baby boy, the boy should be killed, but any daughter should be allowed to live. Like many men who think that they have absolute power, The pharaoh doesn't appear to have had good advisers to point out the flaws in his plan. If he did have good advisers, he didn't listen to them. Either scenario is possible for uh, uh, someone who thinks that they are infallible. The first problem was that the whole idea was misconceived. Being the chauvinist that he was, pharaoh assumed that baby boys were far more important to the growth of the population than baby girls. But actually, of course, if you stop and think about it, the opposite is really the case. After all, one man can make any number of women pregnant at the same time, but one woman can only have one man's baby every year or so. So if you want to really stifle a population's growth, it's the women you need to target, not the boys. But Pharaoh seems to have missed this elementary point. The other problem with his plan was that Hebrew babies were born to Hebrew women, and Hebrew women had Hebrew midwives in attendance at their birth. Pharaoh clearly overestimated the extent of his powers when he supposed that Israelite midwives, whose job it was to bring babies safely into the world, would abandon their principles just because he told them to. Their refusal to carry out his orders, their non-compliance with his instructions, was enough to throw a spanner in the works. Pharaoh clearly could see that his plan wasn't working because there was no reduction in the flow of Israelite babies being born. And he didn't understand the process well enough to know whether the midwives were telling him the truth or not when they said that the Hebrew women were so vigorous that they always gave birth before the midwives were able to get there. As it is, there is perhaps a touch of irony in the situation 
where the will of the most powerful man in the country is effectively frustrated by the resistance of a couple of defenceless women who simply refuse to do the wrong thing. Theirs is perhaps the first known example of civil disobedience. The phrase civil disobedience was first used of a paper written by Henri Thoreau that was originally published under the title Resistance to Civil Government. It was Thoreau who said, if the machine of government is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say, break the law. We do need to be cautious here. After all, the scriptures do say quite explicitly that we need to submit to the governing authorities because they have been instituted by God. But in that same passage, Paul does say that the authorities serve God by benefiting those over whom they rule. And they should hold no terror for those who do what is right, but only for those who do what is wrong. That clearly implies that if the state starts to become an instrument of terror and evil, then it needs to be resisted by people of conscience. As Albert Einstein put it, never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. These two women in Exodus 1 resisted the authority of the state because what the state was requiring them to do was clearly immoral. Ethical purists may have hang-ups over the way in which they lied in order to cover up their for their non-compliance, yet it's clear that God approved of their actions and rewarded them by giving families of their own. The reality is that we don't live in a black and white world. We live in a world with constantly shifting shades of grey, where it can be very difficult to perceive what the right course of action is, and potentially very costly to do the right thing. Inasmuch as these two women courageously followed the dictates of their conscience rather than simply doing as they were told, they offer us an example which all those who fear God are called to follow. And because they did the right thing in the face of opposition from the authorities, they are honoured by being named Shifra and Puah, whereas Pharaoh, the man they resisted, is dishonoured inasmuch as he remains completely anonymous to the frustration of historians trying to figure out at what point in history all this was supposed to have happened. The midwives feared God. That was why they acted as they did. That was the key to their resistance. They feared God enough not to be cowed into submission by the power of the state. They feared God enough to understand that honouring him meant honouring him in their work as well as in their worship. Fearing God has an impact on the kind of people that we are, the kind of lives that we live 24-7. In the Old Testament, fearing God is associated with being trustworthy and hating dishonest gain. It's associated with being faithful. It's associated with integrity. Job feared God and that made him a man who was blameless and upright, a man who shunned evil. Because God himself shows no partiality and will not accept a bribe, it may be deduced that those who fear him share these characteristics. If these are the kind of qualities of men and women who honour God, then these are the qualities we bring to the workplace as those who fear God, as these two women did. And in that context, Ecclesiastes 5.7 also probably has something to say about how those who fear God behave in their workplace when it talks about daydreaming and talking too much being a waste of time. Any manager would give a resounding endorsement to that principle. 
fearing God should make you an efficient and a hard-working employee. There's a lot of discussion on the internet about some places of work having a culture of fear. And in uncertain economic times, with the pressure of targets to be met, it's all too easy for that kind of destructive culture to develop. Christians are called to fear God rather than to be afraid of their boss. And that sometimes means finding ways of doing the right thing when you've been told to do something that is wrong. And that brings all sorts of pressures and a great deal of heart-searching. And you can be sure that Shifra and Pua didn't just fear for their jobs, they feared for their lives as they resisted the will of Pharaoh. But they stand out, both as the first women ever to engage in civil disobedience and also as the first women to disobey their boss because they sought to honour God in their place of work. Fearing God is also sometimes used in the sense of worshipping God, of having a reverence for God, a reverence for God that governs people's lives and actions. If you fear the Lord, you won't worship any other gods. If you fear God, you will look to find ways of making your work an expression of worship to him. Rick Warren has reflected at length on this. He says, no matter what you do, sweeping the streets, running a corporation, or the work of a stay-at-home mum, your job is more than a job. The Bible says while you are here on earth, you should use your work as an act of worship. This means whatever you do, you are to do it with enthusiasm. If your heart isn't in it, you're in the wrong job. If you're not working with all your heart, you're sinning. Why work with all your heart? Because you're working as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. There may be someone who is your supervisor, but you're really serving a higher authority. No matter what I do, if it is to prepare a meal, if it is to sign an invoice, if it is to do an analysis, if it is to close a deal, if it is to make a sale, if it is to make delivery, whatever it is, I am to do it as if I'm doing it for God. And so it becomes an act of worship. Martin Luther, the man who sparked the Protestant Reformation, said you can milk cows to the glory of God. That means you can clean toilets to the glory of God as well. Why? It's your attitude that says, God, I'm doing this as if I'm doing it for you. If work is worship, then the purpose of our worship here on a Sunday in church is to equip us with the resources we need to worship God in the place of work Monday to Friday. If we are living our lives as we should do midweek, then we will find that we can only do that in conscious dependence upon God. Because Christians are never called just to go with the flow and blend into the background. I'm aware that in many respects I have it really easy as a minister because integrating my faith and my work come naturally In this line of work, no one seriously expects a minister to do their job without relying on resources from God for that. But it goes actually for any line of work in which we're engaged. If you're going to serve God well in your secular place of work, which can sometimes be a pretty hostile and difficult environment, you are going to need God's resources every day just as much as I do. And that's where church comes in, because if you're spending yourself in God's service midweek, you will need to come to church to find fresh strength to face the week to come. 
Sometimes I flip through the Celtic Daily Prayer. I've used some resources from that in recent sermons. I found this thought-provoking comment by Alan Jenkins on the weekday to July the 30th. It's really targeted at church and the relevance of church, but it has something to say about what it means to be living wholeheartedly for God midweek as well. He says, The worship of men and women spending themselves in compassionate action would have an air more of desperation than formality. They would stagger into church, utterly drained of goodness, unable to face another day unless their numbed spirits were resensitised and their strength renewed. They'd be too hoarse to sing, too stiff to kneel, and too dog-tired to take away any long exhortations from the pulpit. They would await the reading of the lesson with something akin to dread as God presented them with yet more impossible demands. And every false word in the service would stand out like a sore thumb, and pretentiously ornate language would be heard no more. Instead, they'd gasp out a simple litany, exposing the horror and pain and misery they had shared, asking God to show them Jesus in it. Thought-provoking words. It's costly to live our lives as an act of worship for God. Living for God is never easy because we're called to take up our cross and follow a saviour down the path of sacrificial service. And that is costly and it's painful. And one of the reasons why we come here week by week is because we need God's help to do that. And church on Sunday should be the means of resourcing us to give us the energy and the strength the emotional and spiritual resources we need to be living for God in a hostile and difficult environment the rest of the week. Those midwives found the courage to do the right thing in the workplace because they feared God. That was the key to everything they did. And their fear of God was rooted in their worship of God. So our worship should lead us to fear God and honour God in our place of work. Church isn't a place where we come to forget about the real world. It's the place where we connect with God, who is the ultimate reality, and who calls us to live for him in the real world, and who gives us the resources we need to be able to do so. That reading from July the 30th continues with a quotation from Alan Jenkins. We meet you in the brokenness of the world and the cries of the hungry for bread. Enable us to be the bread that you break, which provides life for the world. And when we come again to your table, Lord, ourselves broken, may we once more become the bread of sincerity and truth, as you become for us the bread of life. Who knows what this week will bring your way? But if you live this week for God, at some point there will be costly and difficult decisions for you to make because doing what is right and doing what is easy are rarely if ever the same thing we come here week by week to declare in our worship Jesus is Lord and we are called to live out that declaration in practice every day of our lives to figure out what it means in a hostile and difficult and secular environment to live as someone who believes that Jesus is Lord over my life, 
over the situation that I encounter. He's the one I serve. He's the one I work for. He's the one to whom I am ultimately accountable. Worship? Worship is about dedicating our lives to God so that we can live our lives as people who fear him and honour him. And as such, people who do the right thing in difficult circumstances and so make a positive difference in this world to which he lays rightful claim. Let's pray. Lord, in many ways, this is a safe place for us. Thank you for the security of belonging to you, of belonging to each other, that we have people who stand with us and support us and pray for us, and we don't face things alone. But you call us to leave this place and go and live for you, sometimes in dark, difficult, compromising, even dangerous situations. Help us to figure out what it means for Jesus to be Lord there. And when we find ourselves powerless and intimidated and not sure what to do, enable us to discern what to say, what to do, how to respond when we're told to do something that is wrong. Enable us to be salt and light in your world. In Jesus' name. Amen.